that's one. Okay, we are on YouTube, which is fun. Okay, so um, you might have noticed that I look a little different tonight than I used to. Uh, thanks to a, a donation, I was able to buy a webcam. So hopefully you can see me clearer and um, this will be a little less pixelated for those who live in YouTube land as, um, yeah, the other camera was not so good. So thanks to my, my uh, donors for our webcam and have a new microphone as well, which actually not different. So we're going to try this to see how it, it looks and sounds better. That's the goal, which I'm not totally on board with that goal, but, but other people have said I should look better. And now I was out of focus. So we're going to work out the kinks of the webcam as we go. So please put up with us, but hopefully it's better overall until we get it figured out. Um, so tonight we are going to work our way through the end of Galatians chapter three, and then hopefully, um, work through the beginning of Galatians chapter four. I know that's ambitious, but that's what's ahead of us. And we will do our best to do that. Yeah, looking at the questions, we're probably gonna struggle to finish Galatians three, but hopefully it will. And the reason I say yeah. that is because um, this is kind of a unit. And this is, this is one of those texts where the chapter breaks isn't always overly helpful. So we'll, we'll try to do our best to get through that. And if not, we'll... Um, We'll come back and visit again. Now you better, you better at least get to chat to question four because that's the one I titled the Bible study. So okay, we will at least get. To if you don't get to question four, four, anybody who showed up for that one is is going to be upset. <laughs> well, that's okay. We'll get to question four. Um, but but as far as as all that goes, this is really different for me. Um, as far as all that goes, I next week we will not meet. Um, I will actually be on vacation and I don't know if I will be anywhere near anything that can stream. So um, next week we will not be able to meet for class. So we'll miss all of you, but Robin and I will be on a little vacation. So next week, no Bible class Tuesday night. Going someplace fun. We are going to Arizona. Oh, yeah. So nice. Robin asked that I take her to the Grand Canyon. And so I said, okay, so since they didn't want to bring it to St. Louis. We got we got a new third basin, but we didn't get the Grand Canyon. So I guess we'll go to Arizona. All right. So that's where, yeah, we're heading out. Um, so we will be on next week. Do you know that they have something like that in Hawaii? One of the islands is almost like a Grand Canyon view. Really? Yes. Well, yes, we I... should go there then. There you go. We should go there next. Which island is that? I think it's Kauai. Is it? I think so too. Yeah. One of the smaller ones. Okay. That seems ironic that a Grand Canyon would be on a small island. Maybe it's not. different. Seems strange <laughs> to me, but okay. I didn't know that. We will have to check that out maybe one of these years. Okay. So Galatians chapter three. Um, remember, we're really in the midst of this discussion um, with. Christ becoming the curse for us, setting us free from the curse of the law. And, and then we kind of got into this section really where we're, we talked about um, how the law 
actually did not precede the promise, but the promise was first. And last week we spent a lot of our time talking about how, um, as a matter of fact, the law is secondary to the to the gospel or to the promise, um, not just temporally, but even theologically, uh, the gospel is the main thing. So we're going to continue that theme tonight as we look at the goal, the role of the law, the goal of the law, and then also the goal of of our faith in the goal of the gospel. So that's that's kind of what we do at the at, through the rest of chapter three. Um, it, chapter three ends with some very familiar verses, um, probably ones you've heard before or, or heard people talk about before. So we'll get into that. And then chapter four actually kind of moves us into some some ideas around Christmas that we usually hear during the Christmas time. So we'll hopefully get to that at some point. So let's pray and then we will start our study. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, our Heavenly Father, you are gracious and merciful to us. Yes, Jesus. You delight to show us mercy and to forgive our sins, and so we thank you. And we pray that you would be with us this night as you study your word, that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that we might read this word according to your will, we might see our Savior Jesus in these words, and trust in him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so... Um, as we get into Galatians 3, we're going to start at verse 21 and read through the end of the chapter. But before we do that, does anybody have any questions from last week or any other week they've been wanting to ask? Okay, let's read then Galatians 3, verses 21 through 29. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Okay, thank you very much. Like I said, those verses towards the end, you've probably heard, um, talked about or, or something. So those are familiar verses. But it kind of starts off a little with a kind of an interesting question that Paul raises or interesting issues. So that's what we're going to kind of look at. So number one, why was the law given? So we're going through this whole logic of when the law was added and transgression, all that kind of stuff beforehand. But why was the law given? What's the role of the law? Well, verse 24 says uh, to be our guardian until Christ came. Good. To be our guardian until Christ came. So the, the role of the law, according to this passage in Galatians, the law really functions to drive us 
to Christ. Okay. And so the function of the law understood properly is to drive us to Christ Jesus. Um, is that backwards for you guys? Is the word is a board backwards for you guys? No. No, it's all good. Okay, just backwards for me. Okay, um, so the law was really given to drive us to Christ Jesus. Um, that Paul uses the figure of a guardian. In some translations, um, this is actually the root of the word pedagogy or a pedagogue, someone that instructs us, an instructor, um, someone who teaches the faith. And so the law was really there to be our teacher, to, to instruct us until we get to Christ. So to instruct us as we are led to Christ. Okay. And um, so what Paul's kind of getting at is that the promise was given through Abraham, right? Promise to Abraham, to Abe. And then 430 years later, we get the law of Moses. And this, this law of Moses then brings us all the way to Christ. And now that we are in Christ, the law has really done its purpose, okay? It's really fulfilled its purpose, and that purpose is actually fulfilled in Christ. So that when we, when we think about the law, the law given, that we, we want to think about that law finding its completion in Jesus Christ, Okay, so the law was given to get us to Christ, and it did its work. It did its job. Kevin, okay? yes. Kevin, may I ask? May I pose a synopsis? Um, the law condemns us, moves us to Christ, who fulfilled the law, and then we are in turn to live like Christ and obey the law. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, so that's exactly the right order. And that's the kind of the way it all works is that the law gets us to Christ. He fulfills the law. And now that we live in Christ, we understand the law to be a revelation of God's will for how we should live in Christ. The law is no longer there to, um, to define our relationship to God. That's not the point of it. Now the law in Christ is there to teach us how to live according to the will of God. Okay, so this is the freedom that we have in Christ is we're set free from the obligation of the law. We're set free to live in Christ according to the will of God, which happens to also be revealed in the law. Okay, and we're going to see how that works. That's actually going to happen for us um, in the later chapters of Galatians, he's going to actually talk about this. Okay. So very good. Yes, you're right, Susan. That was, that was very well said. Okay. Any other questions on that? So how long was this? 
How long was it between the giving of the law of Moses to Jesus? Four hundred and thirty well, years. Well, that's how long it was between Abraham and the law. That's right, four hundred thirty years. Oh, but then gotcha. from Moses to us was this happened in fourteen forty six BC ish? Okay, ish. Somewhere around 1446 BC is when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. So now we're, so Jesus was born, oddly enough, probably around 6 BC, which is strange. So that's 1,440 years ish. That's around, that's a round number, around 1,440 years between the giving of the law and the keeping of the law by Christ as a fulfillment for us. Okay. And now we are living in this period between. The coming of the death and the coming of Christ's death and resurrection and the second coming. And how long is that period? We don't know. I don't know yet. Still waiting to find out, right? Clock's still ticking. We're still counting the years. We don't know. Um, and remember, a lot of people tried to suppose that this was going to be kind of the same number of years. Okay. So we're going to predict the second coming based on all these years. So we're going to say, well, this was 1440, and then you add 430, and you get 1870, all right? So Christ is going to return in 1870, and you do all kinds of math, and, you, and, and, and then, you know, he doesn't come. And we're like, whoops, that didn't work. So then you start finding other numbers, and the point is you don't want to do that. That's not the point, right? That's not actually how this works, is that it's not given for us to predict the second coming. What this is actually given is to encourage us to live in Christ as our relationship between us and God, and then to understand that the law exists not to define us before God because it's always going to condemn us, but instead to teach us how to live until he returns. So now this law teaches us how to live in Christ. Okay? Does that make sense? So what if somebody is not in Christ? What's the role of the law? They're condemned by the law. They're condemned by the law. And what's the, what's the goal? What's the goal of the law? Well, this is number two. See, I think, I think the same way apparently when I teach this because I wrote this and now I'm asking the same question. So number two. So what is the goal? To bring people to Christ. Right. The goal is Christ. Okay, so the law kind of overall in an, an existence kind of way was given to Moses in order to lead all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, to Christ. He came and fulfilled the law. So now all of us who are in Christ live in Christ and the law teaches us how to live. But there are still people now after Christ has come, there are still people that are outside of Christ. So what the law still exists to lead them. To Christ. That's still the point of the law is to drive them to Christ. Okay. Does that make sense? And, and we want to make sure that this is actually what we're doing with the law is that we are proclaiming the will of God, the law in order to drive people to Christ. Okay. Because they're, there is no salvation outside of the one who kept the law and 
was raised by God from the dead. And so we say, well, yeah, it doesn't do any good to just condemn people by the law and say they're wrong or they're whatever, but we actually use the law as God intended to drive us to Christ. Okay. So the goal of the law is to, is to show forth the, the mercy of God in Christ. Does that make sense? Any questions or thoughts on that? Yeah, I got a question. Mm -hmm. So. Donnie, is that you? Huh? Is that you, Donnie? Yeah, that's me. It's good to see you, man. Good to see you. So, uh, okay, the law is to point them to to be the guide to Christ. But when right. people are maybe in Christ and just, I guess, prob probably just feeling that certain things that they're doing may just be hindering them and keeping mm -hmm. them from God, then that's mm -hmm. when we tell them don't pay attention to the law or that's how no, we, we actually Very good. Very good. Very good question. So what we do is we actually affirm that that if they were to see the relationship between God purely in the law, they would be condemned, right? Because those things actually would stand between them and God. But that's why we trust in Christ to define us before God, not in ourselves, okay? So when someone's feeling convicted by the law or they're feeling like this is something that be, that's between them and God, that's exactly when we want to proclaim the gospel, the good news, of what God has done in Christ, okay? So that's exactly when, as a Christian, you want to say to that person, you know, if you believe in Christ as your Savior, if you're in Christ, then that sin is forgiven. And, and you don't have to feel that that is a separation between you and God. That sin has been forgiven in the death and resurrection of Christ. And because Christ fulfilled the law perfectly, even though you can't, his righteousness is counted for you. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. You're welcome. So, so what we just talked about is what Lutherans talk in the Lutheran church. We call this the distinction between law and gospel. Okay. But the distinction between law and gospel, and I'm saying in front of what I just wrote, but this is a, is a very important concept um, for how we read the Bible, but, but more importantly than just how you read the Bible, is kind of how you think about theology and how we talk about theology. So when we talk about the proper distinction between law and gospel, what we mean is the law functions to show our sins, right? The law shows us our sins. It, it, the law is always going to be um, something that's going to say to you, you're not being, you're not perfect. You're not living up to the, to the will of God. You're not perfect. And the law cannot save us. The law will only drive us to um, either sorrow or repentance. That's the goal of the law, to drive us to repentance. So the, the positive outcome of the law is something called repentance. All right. But, but the law, the law will always and only kind of, when we're standing before God, 
the law cannot do anything to save us. It only condemns us, okay? So when we're talking about my relationship to God, the law condemns me. And that's its job. So when, when we're talking to somebody and they don't think they need God in their life, they don't see any reason to need this, well, and that's when they need to hear the law, right? And the, the most obvious law for us to, to live and proclaim and to talk about is the fact that we all die. That's the, that's the strongest reality of the law in our lives that we all share in common is that we're all mortal. And so <clears throat> the law hits us squarely between the eyes when you have to face our own mortality. And what are we going to do about that? Okay. So the law says, um, the reason humans die is out of, out of sin because of the guilt that we have in our sin we die. Okay. So where you think of Romans six twenty three, the wages of sin is death, right? Romans six twenty three, And then the gospel, however, the gospel shows us, and I don't really like this, but it's, it's just kind of what people say, shows our savior. Okay. So, so then the gospel is not about me and what I do or don't do. The gospel is about what God has done in Christ. Okay. And that's going to be primarily then focused on the death and resurrection of Jesus as a sacrifice for sinners. Okay. So that's primary. The message of the gospel is that God sent his one only son to die on a cross for you. That's gospel. See, gospel then is going to be about God's doing. The law is going to focus on our doing. Okay. So, so, so law is going to be us. Gospel is going to talk about God being the one who does good things. So in the law, we mess up, to put it kind of euphemetically, and, and then God, um, God does gospel is what I always say, right? God does gospel. So what we have here then is <clears throat> when we think through the, the message of the Bible, when you think through theology, when you think through our relationship between us and God, these categories help us. When we are reading a passage in the Bible that tells us what we must do, okay, we are reading law, all right? And what's the point of the law? It's going to show me my sins and it's going to drive me to repentance. Even if the law is instructing me on how God wants me to live, it's at, even at the same time, it's going to remind me that I'm not actually living up to that, right? I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. I'm not loving the Lord my God with my whole heart, soul, and strength. And so it, it does at some point say, I've done wrong. I need to repent before a holy, almighty God. That's the job of the law, okay? And then the gospel, when you read passages that talk about, well, this is what God has done, Right? He loves, he forgives, he has mercy. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to rise again, the, the message of the resurrection. And then the fact that all of this is given to you as a gift by God's grace, that's called gospel, okay? And what we want, the reason this is important is because we don't look at the law to save. Salvation is only in the gospel. There is no salvation in the law. You cannot be saved through the law. And this is what Paul is getting at here in Galatians, right? This is exactly what he's getting at. 
Okay, so he says, is the law contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But scripture imprisoned everything under sin, everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all those who believe. So this is exactly what Paul is saying, is that, so the law was given, you know, and all this stuff to bring us to Christ. And the same thing is true for us. We don't look to the law to save us. We look to the gospel for salvation. And when we look for the gospel, what we hear is the good news of what God has done in Christ. And here's the point. You don't have anything to do with this. It's not contingent on you. It's something that was done by God for you and is given to you freely. You can't mess it up. See, that's the good news. You can't mess it up. It's done. It's complete. And the eternal son of God claims you as his very own and says, my righteousness counts for that person because they believe because they have faith, because they've, because I died for them. Now they are gods, right? And, and so this is the good news is that Jesus has done everything required by the law and was crucified for us. And now the law, when it shows us our sins in repentance, Jesus says, you are forgiven. You are forgiven simply because of what God has done in Christ. Okay? So this is what we mean when we talk about distinguishing between law and gospel. Okay, any any questions on that before I, I get too far? What questions do you have for me? I have something that's not like a fully formed question. Okay. And I don't know, maybe I'll ask you this. Have you ever wished that God would take some responsibility for, I don't know, something bad ever, you know? <laughs> um, I know one thing you could say is that, well, he did sort of take responsibility by sending Jesus and he's provided something. But like, sometimes I just wonder, like, is he... I don't know, the whole law thing, this is a weird angle to look at it, but like the law kind of like just justifies him. And <laughs> so I don't know, I, I'm not trying to like, I'm willing to be wrong about it. And if he was standing right here, if God was standing right here, I'd still, I'd still think I'd want to ask him about, <laughs> about it. Yeah. So, um, so, so the really interesting thing that. is that Luther went all the way down this path and you know what he said? He said that that repentance and understanding the, the full weight of the law actually ends up pitting God against God. You actually end up in a fight where God is fighting God. And Luther said that justification actually justifies God and thereby justifies the sinner. Because what justification does is it, it actually removes the question of God's righteousness from this equation. And it actually says that God is righteous because he's not just finding reasons to condemn sinners. He's actually providing the rescue. And so the, 
the fault is all on us. And you may say, well, that's not fair because you're assigning fault, right? I mean, and he says, okay, fine. But now God is actually going to provide the rescue. And so in justification, you actually have even the resolution to that problem, which is that if, if you want to stand up before God and kind of ask him, well, don't you bear some responsibility in this? You made us, right? I mean, all those kind of things. The answer is, is like, and like you, you said, Tom, exactly right, is that yes, he, he actually does answer the question of what are you going to do about this? And, he, and the answer is he's going to sacrifice himself. He's actually going to sacrifice himself. And so I think that the most beneficial thing to me when I think through these questions, and I have, trust me, I have, is, is to remember not only to think of God in a generic way of giving the law, but actually to remember what, what the church fathers say unanimously, pretty much, which is that Jesus is the one that gave the Torah to Moses. Jesus was the one who showed up and gave the law in order to sustain God's people until he would come in the flesh. And so this is really the action of God then, and even the giving of the law, you start to see is the gracious action of God to his people. He, he, he gives them the law, not in order to condemn them, but because they are condemned, he gives them the law to show them who he is and to lead them to his act of salvation. Okay. And that becomes actually the narrative of the scriptures is that this is God continually giving to his people, his word, his promises, his prophets, and even his law to drive his people to continue to trust in his gracious actions until that is really solidified in the incarnation and death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay. So then that's, that's the final thing. That's it. That's the fulfillment of all of this movement. Okay. That's, does that make sense? Yeah. Tom? Yeah. That that's kind of, it's, it's odd. It's strange, but the way you explained it was kind of helpful. Good. Any other questions? If it wasn't for Jesus, would you still find God worthy of worship and, or would it kind of be like obedience out of fear of punishment? You know, like might makes right. I know that's a big what if question. You don't, you know, you don't have to answer it, but I, something I'm curious about. Yeah, I, I think I, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because it's, it's a non-answerable question. Right there, I don't know God yeah. outside of Jesus. All but right, kind of presuming for a second, I think the I think my answer would be I don't have a choice. Oh, uh, okay. God does not. God is not contingent on my decisions, so He's God. I don't His existence or non-existence isn't contingent on me, even on my faith. Um, so, whatever He is. I wouldn't have a choice. It's, it's, he is God. I am not. So if he didn't have Christ, I would probably had a very different view of him. Certainly. Okay. He, sure. would, he would still be the almighty and I would still not. Okay. So, okay. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good questions. That's fun. It's fun to make your brain go different directions. Kevin. Yeah. Kevin. <clears throat> how, oh. how can we, I mean, how could our we our capacity of thinking of what God can you know what he what he's capable of doing? How can we even think about? Um, uh, I don't know what the right word would be, but 
we, there's no way we can uh, question our, our, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to really explain what I'm, what I'm getting at, but I mean, how can, you know, he, he can make nothing out of it with his word. So, I mean, how can we understand that? So we make up Latin words is how we understand God. When we don't know anymore, we just write Latin. So the Deus Abscunditus, it's is the hidden God. And, and this is kind of the idea in theology that, that when we start trying to get beyond what is revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures, we actually start making stuff up because we're looking into God in a way that we just simply can't know him. And so what we do is we simply project ideas onto God, which is either just going to make him like some kind of superhuman God, right? He's just, he's just us, but better or something like that. Or it's going to make him so abstract and a philosophical concept that he's either unapproachable or something, right? And so um, what we try to do is we try not to focus on the hidden God. And that's where most of our questions of what if and, and how's about and did you consider those are usually hidden God questions. And so instead, what we want to do is we want to run to, and I literally mean run if you can, to the revealed God. And the revealed God is the God who is in Christ Jesus. Okay. So I, I think we freely admit without any hesitation, I don't understand God at all. I, I don't have any comprehension of him. I only know what he has revealed to me about himself. And so um, this, is the, this is the teaching of the church. This is what's in scripture. This is, this is primarily then how we see God in Christ Jesus is we say, um, without any hesitation, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't, but I do know what God has done. I know what he has done and what he's revealed. And when I, when I see God as the God who desires for me to know something about him, he desires for me to know this. He desires you to know that he is the God who rejoices to forgive sins. He rejoices to call sinners saints. He rejoices when sinners repent. He rejoices when those who are not worthy are called worthy by the action of Jesus Christ. And he's even so, what would you say? So re rejoicing so much in Jesus Christ actually raises him from the dead. And then he says, everybody who's in Jesus gets the same resurrection. And a matter of fact, there will be a place for us where God will dwell with us. And so we say, that's what God wants me to know. God wants me to know that he's a God that loves and forgives and saves. That's the God that I'm supposed to know. So now what does that do? What does that do when I'm confronted with a reality in which none of that seems to be what's going on? Well, it teaches me to trust in, in a God who is revealed as a God of love and to say, okay, I, I don't know what's going on. It's not my job to understand everything that's going on, but, but the God who is in control, the almighty eternal God who can create everything out of nothing by speaking words that God has said, this is what I want you to know about me that I've, I've, I've got you, you are mine and nothing, nothing can, can separate you from me. Nothing. It, it, I don't care what you come up with life, death, heaven, hell, angels, demons, nothing can separate you from my love. That's what he says. And so we, we actually run to the revealed God. 
our brains want us to talk about the hidden God all the time. We always want to say, well, what about, how about, how about this? Did you ever consider that? And, and philosophically, we can do that all day long. That's what philosophy basically does. It's just running around and saying, let's logic this out. But, but when it comes to actually who God is, that's why we're focused on Christ as the revelation of God. And we look, we look there. Does that make sense? Does that help a little bit? Yes. Okay. Good. The revealed information gives us peace that passes understanding. Exactly. That's exactly right. So, so when you when you understand who God actually is in Christ, Philippians, that's a P if you can't tell. Philippians 4 verse 7, right? So we should back up 4 verse 6 says, don't be anxious about anything, right? But in everything by prayer and petition, let your request be known to God. And then verse 7, and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, that's the peace that passes understanding is that this is who God is. He's the God who loves you. Just like you said, that's exactly right. That's the peace. And that's why we want to spread the gospel. That's why we want to share the good news, right? That's the God that we want to introduce the world to. That God. Okay? Very good. Very nice. So yeah, but, that, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> I, what something Tom said made me think of this, you know, in, in chapter 311, you know, Paul quotes it references Habakkuk's uh, mm -hmm. chapter, what is it, two? Two, four, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting that 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 answer, the just shall live by faith, resulted from Habakkuk's question about why is there all this evil? Why aren't you doing anything? You know, why are the wicked going unpunished? You know, th those lines of thought. So it's, is it maybe fair to say that Paul is kind of indirectly referencing that question when he quotes that or not? Yeah, very good. So, so Paul likes to reference Habakkuk 2, 4 over and over and over. He does it in Romans. He does it here. Um, he does it a couple of times. And, and the question is, how much of Habakkuk, the whole book, is he bringing into the discussion? Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of research by biblical scholars. When I say biblical scholars, it just means smart people that you know, know more than I do. Um, they've, they've done a lot of research on the idea that when when New Testament authors quote portions of the Old Testament, they're actually expecting the reader to know the story, the whole story, not just one verse, but kind of the whole story. And so they're kind of alluding to this to say, remember Habakkuk's whole issue and how it was actually resolved by this promise of living in faith? Well, that's that's kind of what we're getting at. So so very good. And and the issue of the back the book of Habakkuk, you guys might think I'm I'm sneezing or something, but Habakkuk is actually a prophet in the Old Testament. He's a minor prophet with a big name, so I don't know how that works. But, but Habakkuk um, is is a minor prophet who basically challenges God and kind of stands before God and says, "You're not doing a very good job of being God." Okay, he says that twice, and and then um, as God re responds and explains or doesn't explain what he's doing, uh, this is this is kind of the clincher is that. The righteous will live by faith, God says, that trust me. And so then Habakkuk ends his book. It's only three chapters long, okay? So in chapter two, we got the statement of faith. Chapter three is act actually like a psalm, like you read the book of Psalms. 
And the whole point of chapter three ends with this idea that that even if if the fig trees are without figs, even no sheep in the pen, still I will trust in the unfailing love of God. Okay, so that's that's how the righteous live by faith is by trusting in this unfailing love of God. Okay, you can actually watch a video on the whole book of Habakkuk in five minutes if you want to. Crucialproductions.org, Bible in five. We've done Habakkuk. Of course we. Can. And it's on YouTube. And it's on YouTube because of backup. You know, everyone does a backup. Okay, so yeah, good, very good. So number three. So whose are we? We have to get number four. So whose are we? Number three. I think we can answer three and four together. We're gods and we get there through baptism into Christ. Good. Exactly. Right. So this whole discussion is kind of leading to this, right? You can't, you kind of can't, can't miss it. That's right. Exactly right. So now we are, we are in Christ, which means we belong to God, but this is Paul's big phrase, right? Now we are in Christ. So here's the thing. The, the law led us there, but the gospel actually got us there, okay? The gospel actually does it. The law can't save us. Remember that? The law doesn't save. It just gets us to Christ. Christ is the one who saves. So now we are in Christ, and, and you said, you, you, you skipped on to the next question, right? And you said, well, baptism does that okay so if baptism if baptism as paul says puts on christ and gets us into christ then is baptism law or is baptism gospel 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 and if baptism is gospel who does gospel god God does gospel, okay? So baptism is actually a way that God brings a sinner into Christ. And so this is what we mean when we teach what's called the means of grace. That God actually works through means to do this act of saving people by giving them faith in Christ, he actually works through baptism to give someone the gospel and to transform them from sinner to saint, from lost and condemned to saved and in Christ. And so what Paul says, if you look at, sorry, my Bible's down here in the darkness. If you look at, um, really starts at verse 25 is argument. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus. There's, there's that phrase in Christ for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now let's just stop for a second there. We'll get there. Actually we'll get there next, but sons of God is not an anti-feminine term. It is simply a term to talk about inheritance. You are those who inherit from God, the inheritance. That's what it means. It doesn't mean it's not a gender issue, okay? So you are all sons of God, meaning you inherit the kingdom with Jesus, your brother. And you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you are baptized into Christ, see that? Set, baptized into Christ. That's a gospel move. You have put on Christ. So who puts on Christ to you? This is all 
God's action. So God does gospel. Now, a lot of people say, now, now, hold on a second now. Back up, back up. I've been to a baptism. I didn't see God doing nothing. It looked a lot like the church was doing something. Right? It looks a whole lot to me like the pastor was doing some, some washing and some dunking or sprinkling, whatever way your church does baptisms, right? And there was some wiping with some stuff, and there were some promises made, and there were parents making promises, or kids screaming, all kinds of stuff going on. There were candles. There were banners. It looks a whole lot like a church ceremony. And we say, that's right. That's exactly what it looks like because God does all of his salvation work now through his church. Okay. In the same way that the way the gospel is spread to a sinner is through the ear. Okay. And the way that God saves sinners now is by the speaking of of his word to other sinners. See, that's a means through which an instrument through which God gives his grace. And whenever that happens, we know that salvation is not a result of us doing something, but a result of God doing something. So this is why we confess that baptism is actually a means through which God saves sinners. He actually gives grace, right? Now, here's the thing. Can water do that? Can just plain water save somebody? No, right? The power of salvation is in the word of God that delivers what Christ did on the cross to sinners. So the active thing in baptism that saves sinners is the word of God, the promise of God. Okay. So it's not plain water, but it's water com combined with God's command and connected to God's word. Okay. So it's actually the power of the word in this water that washes away sins. Okay. And so this is what, so let's just look for a second. Um, <clears throat> let's just, just for a second, I want to show you this. Just go to First Peter. We haven't gone to First Peter. I don't know if we've been there ever. Let's just go there. First Peter. It's all the way towards the end of the Bible. I mean, you're you're getting really close to the end here. So First Peter, um, it's in the the Catholic epistles. Catholic not because they're Roman Catholic, but Catholic because they're universal or don't have a specific audience. Okay, so these books are written to the general church. It seems they don't have specific audiences like Galatians does. Church of Galatia. Right. So first Peter. Um, so you get Hebrews and then James and then first Peter. And if you got if you get into Revelation, you've just gone too far and don't read it. It's weird. Right. We'll get there some other time. So first Peter chapter three. This is this is just fun stuff. So so look at first Peter chapter three, verse twenty one. It says this, it says baptism which corresponds to this, which he's been talking about Noah's Ark before this. So we'll talk, there's symbolism, there's typology and all kinds of stuff going on. But baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Okay? So baptism saves you. And you go, what? How does that work? And Peter goes, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience. And you say, oh, well, that's us doing that. That's us appealing to God. So baptism is something I do. No, 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 wait, wait. You got you to keep going. You got to keep going. Listen to this. 
an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is the point, is that the power in baptism, the power in the word, the power in the means of grace is the actual death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? Now, since we're in 1 Peter, and that's the way it works in 1 Peter chapter 3, go to 1 Peter chapter 1, the very beginning of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. So 1 Peter, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, that was 1 Peter 3, 21. Okay? So that was, I don't want to write it up there, but I can. 1 Peter 3, 21. Okay? And now we're going to go to 1 Peter 1, verse 3. So let's look at this. So Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. What is it? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay? So what happened is this baptism is a rebirth, not something we do, but something that God does for us and the power behind it is the resurrection of Jesus. The death and resurrection is the gospel itself and the power of the gospel, okay? And so what happens is as we look at um, law and gospel and the role of the law bringing us to Christ and, and in baptism we put on Christ, what has happened now is that God through his gracious action has seen our sin for exactly what it is, right? There's no hiding. There's no pretending. There's no excusing. We call a spade a spade. We are sinful. We are unclean. We don't deserve God's love, but that doesn't stop him from loving us. Okay. He loves you because he loves you. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ to die for you. And then he gives that death and resurrection of Jesus to you when you hear the word, when you're baptized into Christ. And so what's happened is now we have put on Christ. All right. We have put on Christ. And so we actually get, so now we're at number five, I guess. So what do you wear when you put on Christ? Go back to Galatians chapter three. What do you wear when you put on Christ? Well, before we go to Galatians, let's go to Isaiah. Why not, right? Let's go to Isaiah. And occasionally my brain fails me. I think it's in Isaiah 61. So I have to get there fast to make sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh-oh. Yeah, Isaiah 61.10. Okay, Isaiah 61.10. The book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, big old book, chapter 61, verse 10. And it says this, it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. 
Okay, so this this image of Paul at Paul's using in baptism is that God is clothing us. He's putting on the robe of righteousness onto us in our baptism, and now we wear this robe of righteousness. Well, who has a robe of righteousness? I mean, we know Joseph has a coat of many colors, right? Who's got a robe of righteousness? Well, the only righteous one is Jesus. So we're actually clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this is what we put on or is put on us. Okay. Um, okay. Does that make sense? Any, any questions or thoughts on that? Hey, Kevin, in 1 Peter 1, 3, where it said he caused us to be born again, is that the same word as in John 3? You know, I just have a very good question. I always forget that. I've read this a thousand times, and I have the same question every time, and I always forget. I will yes. tell you in a second. I don't want to send you off on it. No, I, I can look it up in two seconds. <clears throat> I just have to find three. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the, the polu autu elios, his great mercy. He has, no, it's not. Okay. Uh, this is this is literally the verb to be born with again stuck on the beginning. Whereas in John 3, it's born um, and then a separate word, which either means again or from above. Anothen. Okay. So this is ana, which is the preposition kind of again, plus the verb um, to be born. Ganao. Okay. Whereas in John 3, it's ganao plus anothen which is the word that, that can mean either from above or again. So it's a different construction. Thank you. Yep. All right. That was fun. Any other questions or thoughts? Okay. Now I want to get on to this next question just real quick. Um, so is there still differences? That's a really bad grammar. It should be, are there still differences? Um, or unless you say, does there still exist or something? You could make it sound right, but I just messed up. So do differences still exist among people, right? Because it says here at the end, well, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female for all are one in Christ Jesus. So are we all just smushed together now as generic people? And there is no difference between us? There's no genders. There's no nationalities. There's no station in life i don't think there is okay there's believers and unbelievers okay good very good so when we're talking about who are we vis-a-vis -vis god there's no difference right there's not there's not believers that are that are different than other believers we're simply in christ altogether. we all receive the righteousness of christ equally so every sinner who repents everyone who is in christ equal right exactly the same before god there there aren't there aren't uh and i know we kind of joke about it but your pastor isn't actually closer to god than you are right that's not how it works um all sinners equal in christ so everyone who's baptized into christ everyone who believes in christ totally equal there, there's no difference we're not going to look at people and say yeah well you're a you're a Gentile Christian, you're a slave Christian, where I'm a freak, I'm a free Jewish Christian or whatever. Like, no, 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 we don't, we don't do that. We don't play those games. 
We are all equal in Christ because of his death and resurrection. Okay. So when it comes between us and God, because we are all guilty and repentant and forgiven, that puts us all on the same, same level, right? So that I don't have any right to stand over someone else and say, well, I'm a better Christian than you. I've got better faith than you or something. No, 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 no. We are all equal in Christ. Okay. That's very good. Good answer. So are there still differences? The body's made of many members. Yeah. So there's other places in that even Paul will talk about the fact that people have different roles, even in the church. So then at the same time, while in our, in kind of this baptized into Christ idea, we're all equal within that God still does talk about having different roles, different genders, right? So he talks about man and woman. He talks about fathers and children. He talks about masters and servants. He talks about all these different strata, even within the church. And so on the one hand, we want to acknowledge that, that as far as our sins and forgiven and being forgiven goes, we're all the same. We're all equal. There's no one better or worse, but yet God did set up our society. He set up even in the church for there to be distinct roles and distinct genders and distinct realities about people. So some people are called to teach. Some people are called to serve. Some people are called to, you know, be hospitable. Some people are called to whatever, right? Some people are called to be fathers. Different people are called to be mothers. And those things are not bad and they're not better or worse. They're just different callings. And that's what we mean when we talk about vocation is that God calls you within the uniqueness of who you are to serve him in various roles that he has put you in in your life. So you might be a pharmacist who is a, who is a mother and a Lutheran or a whatever, right? And so God has called you to serve him in those ways. He's called you to serve you as a pharmacist. He's called you to serve him as a mother. He's called you to serve you in your faith or serve him in your faith. And so we say that while we're all equal, as far as being forgiven in Christ goes, he does still maintain in the church different roles for people and in our society, different roles for people. And we are to, to celebrate those not as superior or inferior, but just simply as different and to recognize that God works in all of those things to, to really bless the whole, right? That's the idea is that he puts all these different pieces together so that it all benefits the whole, okay? And that's in the church then, that's what we talk about being the body of Christ with different, different aspects to it. So you think about Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul actually talks about this, where if the whole, if the whole body were a hand, like then you couldn't see anything because you don't have an eye, right? So if all body was an eye, you couldn't grab anything. You don't have a hand. So he's given us different members in our body. He's also given the body of Christ different members that have different roles to work together in the unity that is in Christ. Okay. So at, at the same time, we want to confess with, with Paul here that when it comes to being baptized into Christ, it's just, it's just being in Christ. That's what matters. That's your identity. Now, 
when it comes to your role vis-a-vis -vis society or other other parts of the church or whatever, then we do talk about male, female, um, different roles, okay? Pastor, laity, those kinds of things. Does that make sense? Okay. And remember, God made them male and female. That was not part of the fall. He said, that's good. Okay, so this is part of what our society is wrestling with right now, is they're telling God that he was wrong in the way he created humans, and that we've got to have this fluidity of who we are. And we, we want to remember as the church that, that really part of this reality of God showing us who he is in the death and resurrection of Christ, it, it helps us to also teach us that his creation is good, is this is a good creation, and we want to affirm the way that God has made humans, not seek ways to change it, but to to rejoice in the way that he made us and to not see male and female as inferior or superior or anything like that we don't do that we say they were made by god to be good right male and female so we affirm the the, the glory of both okay any thoughts or questions on that Okay, well, we, we pretty much got through chapter three. That was impressive, I thought. Oh, whose offspring are you? Look at that. We still have more questions, but we'll just, I just wanted to show you guys how he brings it back to Abraham, right? Remember, so it says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. So that goes all the way back to kind of the beginning of this discussion. Remember that? Um, when we were talking about Abraham, so verse, I mean, you can just keep going back and back and back and back and back, but even in verse six it says just as abraham believed god it was kind of his righteousness and they talk about the whole idea of being in abraham so now he brings it back and what he's really talking about is this oh i erased it but the promise given to abraham through the law and then into christ we're actually now in the same promise given to abraham we have the same faith in the same god as abraham and the god of abraham is the one who's revealed in the death and resurrection of jesus okay so that kind of wraps up chapter three so um, it's a little bit after eight o'clock. So just a reminder, we will not meet next week. So we'll have a week off from this, but we'll come back the following week and pick up Galatians chapter four. And again, as always, I can stay around a little bit afterwards if somebody wants to ask anything or have any different discussions, but let's pray so that people can go if they need to. And it was after o'clock. Let's pray. Lord God, in many ways, you are a mystery to us and our brains can go in different directions and try to figure out who you are. But draw us again to Christ, where you reveal that you are a God of love, that our sins are scarlet, that our sins destroy us, that our sins make us unworthy, and yet your love and your mercy and your grace remove our sins through the death and resurrection of Christ and call us holy and call us your children, and you call us to be yours. So we rejoice that we have peace with you because of Jesus Christ. So keep us in that peace this night as we sleep. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everyone. Amen. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks. Kevin. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks Kevin. You and Robin have a nice vacation. <laughs> Thank you very much. Have a Thank safe trip. Thank you. Thanks. Come see us in Colorado. Thank you.
We will one of these days. <laughs> it's right on the way. Yeah, we're flying. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, it would be. <laughs>